Well, we're continuing on in Romans tonight, but as we start, I just want to ask you, have you ever had that experience where you think you've got great news and you come in and share it with someone and then they're just sort of like ho-hum about it and you're just like totally deflated? I'll give you an insight into our marriage, uh, Victoria and I. Uh, in last night, I got out the TV guide at about 7.30 and I got all excited. I said, do you know what it is? It's the first rugby league game of the season is on TV tonight. And Victoria just sort of turned to me and said, and you want to watch it? And with the obvious intention that there was no way in the world we were. But anyway, it's deflating, isn't it? Uh, we have the most wonderful news that has ever been known, if you are a follower of Christ Jesus. We have the most wonderful news there has ever been. I hope we've seen that so far. I hope you've seen that so far in the book of Romans. Uh, the whole point of this letter is that the gospel is the good news. There is no news better. Uh, it's the Apostle Paul here in Romans explaining the essence of the gospel, God's good news for sinners. And at its very heart, the key point, if you like, is that in the gospel, we receive forgiveness for sins. We have the gift of righteousness given to us from God, all because of Jesus. It is the most wonderful news that you could ever hear. Isn't that right? Yeah. You meant to reply at that point. Isn't that right? Yeah. If you believe it, isn't it right? Isn't it deflating when people we love and people we care about just don't get it and just don't see it for the wonderful news we think it is when it has no impact on them? Isn't that just the most deflating thing, the most horrible feeling? Why don't other people think it's wonderful news? I think this is the most wonderful news there's ever been. Why don't other people, how can they just ignore it when I think it's the most incredible news there has ever been? Well, it's because you only think the gospel is wonderful news if you believe that you are a sinner who has no hope other than in Christ Jesus. The gospel is meaningless or irrelevant if you don't believe that. You only think the gospel is wonderful news if you believe that God is angry with us and justifiably so because of our sin. You see, if you don't believe that, then the gospel really is just, you know, so what? Uh, in my experience, that truth about our sin, that we are sinners who deserve God's wrath, that is the stumbling block that most people actually have to the gospel. Most people actually quite like the idea of God entering the world as a baby. I find many, many people who wouldn't call themselves Christians who actually believe the Christmas story. They believe that God sent his son into the world in the form of a baby in Bethlehem all those years ago. I find that many people don't actually have any problem with the religious ideas excuse me, of the Jesus' death and resurrection. But they still don't become Christians. You see, because they don't believe that they are sinners. They don't believe that they will one day stand before God and stand in the judgment seat, if you like, and face the judgment of God. In my, my experience, most people I talk to believe that we are basically good. Yes, we all make mistakes, but because we all make mistakes, God understands that. And yes, there's a hell, but for, it's for people who are much worse than me. It's for murderers and, and pedophiles and, and Adolf Hitler, not for normal, average people like me. And so religion is fine. My family says this to me. Religion is fine if you want to improve yourself a little. 
In fact, it's good if someone in the family is religious, God might be happier with us too, is sort of the attitude people have. You know, I'm sure God will have a special place in heaven for you because you give up your Sunday nights to go to church. That's the way people think about religion. It's good for you, but I've got no real need for it. That's the way most people think, I think at least, in post-Christian Western culture that we live in. You see, it's not until we understand and believe the reality of our situation before God, it's not until we understand the hopelessness of our situation before God, that we will ever see the need for what Jesus has done for us. See, and so that's what the Apostle Paul is trying to show us in these first three chapters of Romans, chapters 1 to 3. Starting with the passage we had last week at the end of chapter 1, he's showing us our problem. That's what he's doing. So these are not uplifting chapters. They're not meant to be. I'm sorry about that, but you've got to wait a couple of weeks for the uplifting chapters. Uh, You see, what these chapters are doing is they are shining a torch into the dim, dark recesses of your soul and my soul, into the dim, dark recesses of our hearts, and it's not a pretty picture. So these chapters are uncomfortable. They're unpalatable. I can tell you they're hard to preach. I've had a depressing week working through this passage, but they are essential chapters. Because it's only when we understand these chapters properly, Romans 1 to 3, it's only then that firstly we really understand ourselves properly, first of all. But then secondly, it's only when we understand these chapters properly. Brendan's bringing me a drink of water. Thanks, Brendan. It's only when we understand these chapters properly that our mind gets blown by how wonderful the gospel is. See, it's only if you understand chapters 1, 2 and the start of chapter 3 correctly that when we get to chapter 3, verse 21, in a couple of weeks, I think the greatest verse in the Bible, it's only when we understand these chapters properly that we grasp just how amazing it is that God offers us forgiveness and the gift of his righteousness in Christ Jesus. So let's get into it. Please open up your Bibles, Romans 1 to 3. I don't just say that for my benefit. Uh, you really will only understand what we're talking about if you have the Bible open in front of you. Now, really, this is all one long section from chapter 1, verse 18, through to chapter 3, verse 20. We're dealing with it in three sermons because it's a long passage to read. Uh, and it's all unpacking chapter 1, verse 18. So look with me at chapter 1, verse 18. It's on page 1036. It says this, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness. That's what it's about. It's all about God's wrath against human sin. And we saw the last, first part sorry, of it last week in chapter 1. Uh, Troy did a great job for us, I think, of opening up those verses. Uh, we saw how humanity, do you remember? We saw how humanity turns and instead of worshipping the creator, the one who created everything, what do we do instead? We worship the things he has created. Instead of worshipping the creator, we worship the creation. And then we saw how humanity then descends further and further into sin. Uh, And it describes some pretty depraved activities in chapter 1. But it also talked about how even if, if we don't engage in those depraved activities, how we as a culture and as a society, we treat them as normal, even though we should be treating them as abhorrent. But as I sat here last week, I'll tell you what went through my mind. Even though I know I'm a sinner, 
I know that in my mind. I know that because I've read the Bible. It tells me I'm a sinner. But I sat here and I must admit I, said, I was thinking, yes, but that's not me in that second half of chapter 1 that we looked at last week. Yes, I know it's true. I know I'm a sinner. But that description is not me. That is our world. I don't deny that. You know, I look at people doing these things in our world and I'm appalled. I'm appalled by it that people do these things, but I'm not that depraved. Now just be honest with yourself. Did you think the same as Troy opened up chapter 1 of Romans for us last week as it talked about all sorts of immorality and so forth? Did you think the same? And in fact, the passage actually encourages us to think a bit like that. Do you notice in those verses 18 to 32, just flick through them, how Paul talks about them and what they do rather than us and what we do. You see, what he was doing was he was talking about the Gentiles. He was talking about the pagans in the Roman Empire and what they did and how they lived and how they deserved God's wrath. But frankly, he could have been talking about modern day Sydney, really, in those verses. But you see, that's them. Not us. Even before I became a Christian, I didn't live like that. And if you, for some of you, if you've grown up knowing Christ, if you've, if you've never known a time, if you had a mum and dad who were Christians and who brought you up in that way, you didn't live like that. And you see, Paul knew that there were people like me sitting in the church in Rome as he wrote this letter. In particular, he knew there were people from a Jewish background People who had always tried to live by God's law. People who had the Ten Commandments and all of that sort of thing. But also morally upright Gentiles who had sort of separated themselves from the immorality of their culture and who'd never lived like that. And Paul knew that as he got to the end of chapter 1 verse 32 there, they would be saying, well done Paul. That's exactly what those people need to hear. That's what those people over there need to hear. They need to hear how immoral they are. They need to hear how depraved they are. They need to hear how God is angry at them. But then Paul surprises them and us. Because what he does in chapter 2 is he says, hang on. Don't you judge. Because I'm talking about you too. You moral, self-righteous people like Phil. I'm talking about you too. Look with me from chapter 2 verse 1. He says, therefore, any one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. He's talking to the Jews there who were in the church in Rome, who thought because they had God's law, they were better than others. And he's saying, be very, very careful. Because if you don't keep all of God's law yourself then you too will face God's judgment. Be very careful not to judge other people. Look at verse 3. He says, Do you really think any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? The answer is, of course, no. And then Paul really turns it on to them. Look at verse 4. He says, Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. It's a really, really important verse, that one. See, what he's saying is, knowing God's law, knowing what God wants, was not meant to make them feel superior for all the people who didn't know it. 
It wasn't meant to make them judge other people for their sin. In fact, the opposite, it was meant to lead them to see their own sin and show them God's kindness so that they might then repent of it and turn to God for forgiveness. Now he's saying, if you want to say, look at me, I'm much better than those other people, those awful sinners over there. He's saying, then be very, very careful. Look at verse 5. He says, but because of your hardness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. In the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment is revealed. See, we all love to compare ourselves to other people. It gives us comfort to think that there are worse sinners than me. But Paul says, no, 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 don't worry about them. You worry about your own sin. Which leads us into the big point he wants us to make in this chapter. And it's in verses 6 to 11. Uh, And they're sort of the key verses we're going to spend most of our time on. And that is, on the day of judgment, God will judge everyone for their sin. That's his big point. He will not show any favoritism. We don't like to think of the judgment day, do we? Did you come to church thinking, I'm I'm glad I'm coming tonight. We're talking about the judgment day tonight, you know. Uh, But we need to think about the judgment day. We have to think about it if we're going to make sure we're on the right side of it. And these few verses are actually the key to understanding it. And the key point he wants to make about the judgment day is that it will be totally fair. Look at verse 6. He says, He, God, will repay each one according to his works. Why does he say that? He's, He's saying it because, you see, the Jews thought they would get special treatment, that there'd be one judgment for them where they'd get through, if you like, and then one judgment for everyone else. See, that's what he focuses on down in verses 17 to 29. You can look at them later. We're not going to look at them closely tonight. But the apostle is saying here, no, there's no special treatment. Whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, you will be judged on how you have lived in this life. Whatever your race, whatever your nationality, it doesn't matter. God will judge everyone according to how they have lived in this life. Like he says at verse 11, there is no favoritism with God. See, and that is because we will all be judged on the basis of our works. When we stand before God, the judge, on that last day, whoever we are, he will judge us according to the way we have lived here on earth. And there are two potential outcomes. We see them in verses 7 to 10. Firstly, there is life. Look at verse 7. He says, Eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality. And again at verse 10, But glory, honour and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. So you see what he's saying? The way to eternal life is persistence in doing good. But then there's the path to God's wrath, the other side of the coin, if you like. Look at verse 8. He says, But wrath and indignation to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth, but are obeying unrighteousness, affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. See, if we disobey God's truth, if we put ourselves first, selfish ambition as he calls it, then God's wrath is our fate. Now remember, he's talking about the judgment day here. 
Uh, not yet how we're saved from that judgment. Not yet, anyway. So what's the point he's making? The point he's making is, it is not just those sexually promiscuous, evil-loving pagans of chapter 1 who will be judged for the way they've lived. Everyone will be. Even you Jews, even you morally superior people who have God's law and think you're so much more righteous than everyone else, everyone will be judged. There is no favoritism with God. But someone might say, what about if we didn't know God's standards? So if you were a Gentile back then, before the time of Christ, the Jews had the law. They knew what they were breaking. They, they knew the law. They knew what God wanted from them. They knew what they weren't doing. Other people didn't know what was right and wrong. How is it fair? It's a good question, I think. I think it's a question everyone should ask. How is it fair? Now, he answered it a bit back last week in chapter 1. Do you remember? He said, just by living in this world, every one of us, just looking at the creation that we live in, every one of us has enough evidence to mean that we are guilty of rejecting God. Even if we've never had the Bible, even if we've never known God's law, we know enough to be guilty of failing to honour God. That was the point in chapter 1. But now he adds a bit more than that. He says the judgment day will be fair because people will be judged according to the knowledge they have. Just look from verse 12. He says all those who sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all those who sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Do you see his point there? Please stick with me here. This is a very hard passage and you've got to really keep switched on to understand it. Do you see his point in verse 12? He's saying Jews who lived by the law... Well, God will, they will judge them for failing to keep it. Gentiles who've never heard the Old Testament law, they'll still be judged, but not by that standard. So what standard does God judge people by, people who haven't heard his law? Well, let's look from verse 13. He says, For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be declared righteous. Keep with me here. He's saying having the law doesn't make anyone right with God. He's talking to the Jews still there. Knowing the law, reading it, hearing it preached does nothing for you. Doing it, that does something for you. Actually keeping God's law, that's what we need to be righteous, to be right with God. So with that in mind, the Gentiles who've never heard the Ten Commandments should still know that it is wrong to murder. They should still know that it's wrong to commit adultery. They should still know that it's wrong to steal. And that's his point in verse 14. So look there. He says, so when Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. What's he saying there? He's not saying, oh, if their conscience says it's okay, then it's okay to do it. He's not saying that at all. Now, our consciences are as impacted by sin as any other part of us. In fact, it's a good guide that if your conscience just says, go ahead and do it, don't even think about it, it's probably sin talking rather than anything good. Now, the point he's making here is that a Gentile who has never heard God's law can still know that something is right and can still know that something is wrong. 
It's just part of the way God has designed us. And when we stand before God, we will be judged according to what we know. So if you know the Bible and you've heard it and you've heard God's law taught, you'll be judged according to that. But if you've never heard it, you will be judged according to what you should understand from what has been revealed to you. And the point he's making overall is God is fair. On that judgment day, God is fair. And more than that, just look at verse 16. God won't just judge according to what we see. He judges what people have kept secret. He judges the very thoughts of our hearts. Isn't that just about the most scary idea in the Bible? That God doesn't just judge what we put out for show for other people to see. God judges the very, very thoughts of our hearts. Those dimmest, darkest thoughts that we don't want anyone to know about. You see, it is easy to appear moral and upright to people around us. It's very, very easy, but you cannot hide the reality from God. The reality is that on that judgment day, there will be an enormous amount of hypocrites exposed. The reality is that there will be people who have put on a veneer of religion or a veneer of morality to cover all sorts of secret sins that will be exposed on that day. So there will be people who will say to God, but I was a church elder. And God will say, yes, but I know how you treated your wife in your home where no one could see. And people will say, I, I never committed murder. But God will say, yeah, but I know the way you hated people in your heart and backstabbed them and gossiped about them and slandered them. And people say, I never committed adultery. But God will say, yes, but I know the lustful thoughts you entertained and the pornography you looked at when no one else could see you. And people say, I never stole anything. But God will say, I know the way you covered it. And I know the way you were never content with what I gave you. You always wanted more. You wanted to wait into the next thing. You always wanted something that someone else had. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? That God judges the heart, not just the actions. That is the judgment day. That's what this chapter is about. That is the day when everyone will stand before God and be judged. And no one will be able to complain to God and say, it isn't fair. But there's an issue here that I haven't quite addressed yet. Have you been feeling uncomfortable as I've been talking? Not just because I'm talking about the judgment day and wrath and hell and those sort of things. Has anyone been feeling uncomfortable and thinking they need to take me outside and talk to me about something because I'm not doing a good job as the senior minister of the church? It's all right to say it if you think so. Look again at verses 6 and 7. He says, and please don't anyone walk out of the sermon at this point and not hear the next bit. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, he will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality. That doesn't sound right, does it? Why doesn't it sound right? Because we know we're not saved by works, we're saved by faith so that no one can boast. Isn't that right? Well, look at verse 13. 
It says, for the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be declared righteous. That doesn't seem right, does it? If you think it does sound right, I've been doing a terrible job of teaching you for the last 10 years. It doesn't sound right. Aren't we saved by faith alone? In Christ Jesus alone, not by works, not by doing good, not by doing the law. But it seems here like he's saying that we're judged according to works and there is some hope it might be possible to earn eternal life by keeping the law. Now he can't be saying that. Why not? Because in next week's passage, chapter 3, he finally gets to the climax, if you like, and he tells us there is no one righteous. There is no one who seeks God. The only way to find eternal life, the only way to be declared righteous, the only way is by faith in Jesus. The only way is if Jesus takes away our sin and forgives us and declares us to be right with God and gives us the gift of his righteousness. No one can earn it. It's a free gift of God by grace alone, by faith alone, in Jesus alone. So then given that that's a given, does that make sense? Given that that is a given, what is he saying here in verse 7 and verse 13? Well, I think there are two legitimate possibilities and both are true from elsewhere in Scripture, though I only think one of them is what he's saying here, but I'm not going to tell you which one until I get to the end because otherwise you won't listen to the other one. So, the first possibility is, he's talking about the fact that on the judgment day, every person will be judged according to their works, how they have lived their life. Now, for people who have not trusted in Christ, whether they are Jew or Gentile, they will face God's wrath and there is no hope. That is a sobering message but it is the reality of what the scriptures say. For people who have not trusted in Christ in this life, they will face God's wrath and there is no hope. But for people who have, if we have repented of our sin, then we will not face God's wrath. We've already been declared righteous through faith in Christ. But even so, our works will be judged by God on that judgment day. Now, please listen very carefully here because I find a lot of Christians don't understand this. I talk to people and they don't understand it. Our works will still be judged by God on that judgment day. The, the key verse on this is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Just look in your outline. I've printed it out for you. It says this. It says, For we must all appear before the tribunal of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or worthless. Do you see what he's saying there? Our good works done in faith, good works that haven't come out of faith in Christ Jesus are, are worthless. But our good works that we do as Christians because of what Christ has done for us, the good works we do, they will be rewarded by God on the judgment day. But more than that, the worthless things we have done, the things we have wasted in this life, if you like, will be burnt away. There is still a judgment of works for Christians. Understand that. 
Take it to heart. Don't waste your life. Don't presume on Jesus' grace and say, isn't that wonderful? I'm declared righteous. I have no condemnation to fear from God. That is true. But don't then presume on that and say, so now I'll live however I want. There is still a judgment of works on that judgment day where we are rewarded for the good things we do, the good works we do because of our faith in Christ Jesus. And the worthless things will be, will be burnt away. But more than that, and what people think Paul's talking about here, the good works we do will be evidence of our faith on that judgment day. So you see, God judges the heart. God knows real faith and he knows fake faith, if you like. But the evidence that will be put forward on that judgment day, on the last day, to show that this is someone who truly trusts in Christ, has been declared righteous, the evidence that will be put forward will be the good works we have done because of our faith in Christ. We're saved by faith alone. We're justified by faith alone. But a true and living faith will show itself in the good works we do before Christ returns. And so back to Romans 2. One possibility is that's what this is talking about here. That on the judgment day, yes, we only receive eternal life because of our faith in Jesus. We're only justified, declared righteous through faith in Christ. But God will look at our works and he'll look at our persistence in doing good, our seeking after his honour and glory, all the things he talks about in those verses. He will look at that as the evidence of our faith. They don't enable us to be saved, but God sees it as the evidence that we are someone who is saved by faith. Now that is certainly true from other parts of scripture, but I don't think that's what he's actually saying here in this passage. Even though many people smarter than me think he is saying that. Uh, I think here Paul isn't thinking about our salvation yet. He's talking about the judgment of God. That's what he's doing. And he is establishing God's standards for judgment. And what he's doing is he's talking about the fact that it will be totally fair. And so he's saying, if you did keep the whole law, if you did keep it, if you did persist in doing good, if you did truly seek after God and seek after his honour and his glory above all else, if you did, as Jesus puts it, love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength, and if you did love your neighbour as yourself, then you would be declared righteous. You would receive eternal life. God is fair. If you do that, that is his standard and he would keep his word. But then, when we get to chapter 3 next week, he will say, but no one does. No one seeks God. No one seeks his glory. No one is righteous. Not even one. And so what it means is, our only hope on that judgment day is to trust in Christ for his forgiveness. Not to try to earn our salvation from God's judgment. There is no hope there. Not to try to tell God how righteous we are. There is no hope there. Not to try and tell God how we're better than other people. And so he should just set his bar somewhere here so that we're just in and everyone else gets judged. There is no hope there. The only hope 
is to admit that we are sinners who are guilty before God, just as guilty as everyone else, and we need saving. See, I think that's the main point of this passage. There will be a judgment day. It will be totally fair. There will be no special leave passes out of God's judgment just because you're a Jew or you went to church or you were baptised as a child or you were religious or whatever other things people think. And God isn't particularly interested in the fact that you're better than someone else. God really doesn't care. God isn't interested in the fact that you aren't the debauched pagan who is being described in chapter 1, getting up to all sorts of activities that, that other people think are immoral. God isn't interested in the fact that you are comparatively moral compared to other people in the community. He's not even interested in the fact that you're well respected in the church community. In fact, hear this. If anything, God will hold to a higher standard. God will hold to a higher standard those who have had greater opportunities to hear his word and have still not repented. The judgment day will be horrible for the nominal churchgoer. The judgment day will be horrible for the churchgoer who has sat under God's word week in, week out, but not turned and trusted in Christ. The judgment day will be especially horrible for the churchgoer who sat and heard God's word and thought, aren't I superior to other people? Aren't I better than those other sinners who God's word is condemning? See, it's such an easy trap for the Christian to compare themselves to others to make themselves feel better. It's so easy to be self-righteous rather than compassionate. To be self-righteous rather than compassionate towards other sinners. To look down our nose at other people rather than to hold out the gospel, which is what they actually need. See, this chapter is a reminder to us that God hates the proud religious person. God hates the self-righteous Pharisee. But he offers grace and forgiveness to anyone. From the worst of sinners to the self-righteous Pharisee, God offers grace and forgiveness to anyone. If we will just admit our sin... Repent and turn and trust in Christ to receive his forgiveness. We are all sinners. That is the message of this chapter. We are all sinners. Whoever you think you are, whatever you think about yourself, we are all sinners. And our only hope is to trust in Christ Jesus for forgiveness. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for all of your word, but especially tonight for difficult passages like this one that confront us with the reality of our situation and father we pray that we might never be the self-righteous pharisee who reads your word and reads your law and thinks look at me i'm so much better than other people instead we pray that we might read your word and be driven to repentance that we might read your word and see that we are not worthy of your forgiveness and grace we have done nothing to earn it we are but sinners whose only hope is to trust in Jesus who died for our sins. Father, if there is anyone here tonight who has never turned and trusted in Christ to find that forgiveness, we pray that they might do it tonight. We pray that you might knock aside all human pride and help each of us to be willing to repent of our sin and confess it to you 
and turn and trust in Christ Jesus. And for those of us here who do know and love the Lord Jesus, we pray that you might help us never to judge others, but instead to hold out the wonderful truth of your gospel to all people so that others might hear that wonderful news and join us in trusting in Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.